Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. We'll see how this goes. Um, my excitement is that I have a new laptop, um, and I haven't decided whether to use my new built-in mics. Um, mostly I'll probably keep using my headset because I think it's easier and better. Um, but I'm, I'm currently recording um, at my parents' house and didn't bring my normal headset mic with me, and so I am using using um, this. So hopefully it sounds okay, although it's probably a little different than the way it has sounded. Anyway, today we have another tragedy from Euripides, and it's a story that we've seen before. We've heard it from Aeschylus, we've heard it from Sophocles, and we've even heard it from Euripides, at least part of it. Uh, we got Electra's story in the play titled after her, and today we get her brother's story in Orestes. Um, this play is from very late in Euripides' career. If I've counted correctly, we only have two more after this one, both of which were produced posthumously. Um, Orestes premiered in 408 BCE, um, and it won nothing. No surprise there. This play takes place immediately after the events Euripides presents in Electra, so right after Orestes, Electra, and Pilates kill Clytemnestra. Um, and so the cast consists of a bunch of characters we've seen many times. Electra, Helen, Orestes, Menelaus, Pilates, and Hermione. Um, I can't remember if we've seen Tyndarius before, but we've definitely talked about him because he's Clytemnestra's dad. Um, on the immortal side of things, we have Apollo, and uh, the speaking roles are rounded out by a messenger and a Phrygian eunuch who is one of Helen's slaves. And our homogenous chorus is made up of maidens of Argos. I don't think I need to give you uh, much more background because, as I noted, this is a story we've covered many times before. Uh, so we'll take a short break and then find out what Euripides' version of this part of the story is. The play opens on Electra. Orestes is on stage, lying asleep on a couch upstage. Electra delivers the prologue, a little about the rivalry between Atreus and Thyestes, and the curse on the house of Atreus, and a little about Agamemnon and Menelaus, and Helen and Clytemnestra. She mentions her sister uh, Chrysothemis and Iphigenia, and her brother Orestes. Um, how Clytemnestra killed their father, how Apollo persuaded Orestes to kill their mother, how she helped and Pilates helped too, like shake and bake. Too soon? <laughs> or is that reference simply too old? Did I just date myself? Uh, anyway, Orestes is now paying the price for that murder. Electra is too scared to name the goddesses who torment him, uh, so she'll just call them the kindly ones, the Eumenides. It's now six days since Clytemnestra's body was cremated. Orestes hasn't eaten or bathed in all that time. He is racked with fever and weeps when the fever abates, unless he's raving like a wild animal. The city has decreed that no shelter be given to the murderers, and on this day, the people will vote on the form of execution, stoning or beheading. But Electra has some hope. Menelaus has finally returned from Troy and is on his way to the palace of Argos along with Helen and Hermione. 
Perhaps Uncle Menelaus will offer them refuge. Helen enters from the palace. She asks Electra how she and Orestes are doing. Helen blames Apollo for the murders, so it's okay to talk to Electra. She mourns everything that has happened, her going to Troy, the loss of her sister. Electra rolls her eyes and comments that it's pretty obvious how Orestes is doing. All you have to do is look to see, yeah, he's not so great. Helen asks Electra to go to Clytemnestra's tomb on her behalf. Helen herself is too ashamed of her own past actions to show her face in Argos. After all, if she hadn't gone to Troy, then Agamemnon and Menelaus wouldn't have followed her and everyone would still be alive. Helen is understandably afraid of the parents of all of the men who died in Troy. Electra refuses and suggests Helen send Hermione instead. Helen scoffs. After all, Hermione is still unmarried. It's, it's not suitable for an unmarried woman to go out in public. Helen points out, sorry, um, uh, Electra points out that Clytemnestra was practically Hermione's mother during all of the years of the Trojan War, and Helen agrees that, yeah, that's a good reason for Hermione to visit the grave. She calls for her daughter. Hermione and some attendants enter. Helen gives her instructions, and Hermione and her attendants exit toward the tomb. Helen goes back into the house. Electra scoffs at Helen's show of grief, calling it just that, a show, not true grief. She hears her friends, the chorus, coming and beseeches them to be quiet so as not to wake Orestes. The chorus enters and exchanges lines with Electra about being quiet, which it totally, it reminds me of the scene um, from Once Upon a Mattress, quiet, quiet, the queen insists on quiet, she's ordered, okay, I'll, I will see, I, I think I did find a clip of it um, to post on the blog. It's delightful. Um, that's how my brain works. Anyway, the chorus asks after Orestes and Electra uh, tells us what we already know. Then uh, they all try to be quiet, but Orestes does eventually wake up. He feels quite refreshed and can't remember exactly what all has happened, but he also feels very weak. Uh, no surprise, given that he hasn't eaten in six days. Electra tells him about how Menelaus has come on his way home from Troy and that Helen is with him. The siblings agree that their grandfather sired terrible daughters. And then the Furies appear to Orestes again, and he starts ranting and raving. He regrets his actions. He's sure that if he'd been able to ask Agamemnon, his father would have pointed out that killing Clytemnestra wouldn't bring him back from the dead. The two, Electra and Orestes, vow to take care of each other forever. Electra exits into the palace, and Orestes lies back down. The chorus sings a song to the Furies, begging them to leave Orestes be and calling on the gods to support them. Menelaus and his attendants enter. Menelaus speaks of learning that his brother was murdered and his horror that Orestes had killed Clytemnestra. I mean, Orestes was just a baby when Menelaus last saw him. Orestes gets up from his couch and says, I'm Spartacus. No, wait, that's not even the right ancient Mediterranean culture. Uh, he says, I'm Orestes, and he throws himself at his uncle's feet in the position of a suppliant and begs for rescue from the Argives. Menelaus is shocked by Orestes' appearance. I mean, who wouldn't be? Uh, for one thing, we've already established that Menelaus hasn't seen his nephew in 17 years. Uh, plus, the young man hasn't showered in nearly a week. Orestes confesses to the murder of his mother and speaks of his torment by the Furies since the deed was done. He tells Menelaus that it was Phoebus Apollo who told him to kill Clytemnestra. Menelaus asks if Apollo was helping now. Orestes says no, but he's sure that Apollos will help him in time. He goes on to explain that uh, the Aegisth uh, that Aegisthus's friends in Argo seek to drive him out of the city or kill him. 
Menelaus sympathizes and points out that the friends who are by your side at your lowest point are your true friends. And now Orestes knows who his friends really are. Gee, thanks, Uncle Menelaus. The chorus leader announces that Tyndarius is coming. Orestes groans. Grandpa is not happy that his daughter was murdered by his grandson. Tyndarius and his attendants enter. He's looking for Menelaus and finds him. Tyndarius is furious that Menelaus would even consider pitying the man who murdered his daughter, going so far as to compare his son-in-law with those barbarian Trojans. Tyndarius insists that there's right and there's wrong, and he sees no reason to defend any wrong action ever. And the only retribution for what Orestes did is for him to suffer the same fate as his mother. Sure, Clytemnestra was wicked, but now Orestes is at least as wicked as she was. Um, so apparently, wickedness is cumulative, um, kind of like, I don't know, mercury, you know, that once you get some in your system, it doesn't go away, and the more you eat, the more it builds up. It, apparently, you know, you kill someone who was wicked, then you're wicked because of the killing, and you've also taken on their wickedness. I don't know. Um, that's at least how Tyndarius seems to think. Um, not, not that Tyndarius doesn't then immediately contradict himself by saying that um, revenge killings um, have to end at some point. Um, so sure, he hated Clytemnestra because of her actions. And honestly, he's not so fond of Helen either. Um, he won't even talk to his daughter who's still alive because of her actions. Um, oh, and, and oh, that Menelaus has actually taken Helen back. That's, that's unfathomable. He just cannot believe this has happened. He then berates Orestes directly before announcing that he thinks the best course of action is for Orestes to be stoned by the Argives. Uh, that's really what should have happened to Clytemnestra. Uh, she deserved what she got, just not the way that it happened. Tyndarius hates his daughters. Otherwise, he's had a pretty good life. Orestes grovels. He does his best to justify why he killed Aegisthus and Clytemnestra, and then he points out that if the Furies are tormenting him, surely they'll be even worse to the man who kills him. Um, then he blames Tyndarius for this because Clytemnestra was his daughter. Um, after all, Telemachus didn't kill Penelope because she was brought up right and didn't take up with a new husband when her first husband was still away at war. Plus, he was only obeying Apollo, so he should be forgiven for what he did. Tyndarius is not swayed by this argument and announces that he's going to tell the Argives that stoning is the best penalty for both Orestes and Electra, and he and his attendants exit. Menelaus doesn't know what to think anymore. Orestes makes his case once more in the hopes that Menelaus will speak on his behalf and stand up for his niece and nephew. Menelaus agrees to ask the Argives to be more moderate in their punishment, and he and his attendants exit. Orestes prays that he'll escape Argos with his life, then sees Pilates coming, and Pilates enters. Their friend speaks about their, uh, they, they speak about their options for not getting killed and retribution for the murders they committed. Pilates urges Orestes to find Electra and flee, but Orestes points out that they are too closely watched for that sort of escape. They decide to go and pray at Agamemnon's grave together, and they exit. The chorus sings about the history of the house of Atreus. Electra enters and asks where Orestes has gone, and the chorus explains. Then a messenger enters. He brings the bad news that the people who have voted, the people have voted for Electra and Orestes to be executed that day. Uh, then he goes on for a while about just how the vote went, you know, the arguments made, so on and so forth. Um, what it boils down to is that 
Um, Orestes promised to die by suicide along with his sister instead of being stoned, and Menelaus didn't try hard enough to prevent the death sentence. The messenger exits. Electra monologues about death, and then Orestes and Pilates enter. They speak about their fate and ask Pilates to bury them properly once they are dead. Pilates doesn't want to live without his BFF and suggests they get a bit of revenge first. They should kill Helen. Orestes and Electra are all in, and the chorus hates Helen too, so they give this plot the green light. Electra suggests kidnapping Hermione while they're at it. Then they can use her as a hostage so that they can escape unharmed. Orestes and Pilates are impressed at this suggestion. The three vow to carry out this plot together, and Orestes and Pilates exit into the palace. Electra directs the chorus to stand guard. Helen's voice is heard from inside, crying out for Menelaus to save her, much to Electra's joy. Hermione enters and asks about the cry that she heard. Electra shrugs and says that Orestes just killed her mom. Hermione is shocked and appalled that her cousin did this, and she exits into the palace. Electra shouts for Orestes and Pilates to capture Hermione, and she exits into the palace too. The chorus sings about how Helen is getting what she deserves. A Phrygian eunuch enters. He tells the chorus how he barely escaped with his life. Then he provides the details of what happened inside, how Orestes and Pilates came barging in and were about to kill Helen when Helen suddenly disappeared. Because, of course, Tyndarius isn't her real father. Her real father is Zeus. And it was then that Hermione entered, and since they weren't able to kill Helen, Orestes and Pilates are now determined to kill Hermione instead. Orestes enters and pronounces his new plan to kill both Helen and Hermione. The Phrygian exits, and Orestes go back, goes back into the palace. After a very brief comment by the chorus, Menelaus and his attendants enter. At the same time, Orestes, Pilates, and Hermione enter on the roof of the palace, and the play turns into a hostage negotiation. And let's just say that Menelaus has no training in this field, um, and ultimately he decides to just try and burn them out, and he sets the palace on fire. And at this point, Apollo finally appears, along with Helen. The god tells everyone to simmer down, Helen's not dead, and Orestes has his protection. He's to go to Athens for trial by the Furies, and he'll win too. And then Orestes and Hermione will get married. I'm sure she's engaged to Neoptolemus, but he's going to die in Delphi. And Electra and Pilates will get married too. And then Orestes will rule Argos, and Menelaus will go back to rule Sparta. And just to make sure everyone is clear, Apollo states that he told Orestes to kill Clytemnestra. Orestes says a big thank you. Everyone agrees to obey Apollo. Apollo says good. And then he says that he's taking Helen to Olympus so that she can hang out with her brothers, Castor and Polydikes. And he and Helen exit. The chorus gives thanks to victory and the play ends. In this play, we once again see Euripides take a story and just blow it up. <laughs> the characters that we've seen in the past as um, fairly black and white are complex and messy, and no one really comes out looking all that great in the end. Um, one of the great things about this play is, though, that both Helen and Menelaus make appearances. Um, Helen frequently gets a bad rap. Um, honestly, she's not she's not terribly sympathetic in this play either. Um, but her first speech is very human. 
uh, she speaks about how the last time she saw her sister was before she went to Troy. And now she won't get to see her again because her sister is dead. Menelaus mirrors this. And together, the couple are a reminder that there's more to the murders of Agamemnon and Clytemnestra than vengeance. Um, frequently we focus on vengeance when we talk about those deaths. Um, but there's more than that. They, they're family members, right? Um, it's the death of siblings, of people with a shared history. Menelaus misses his brother. Helen misses her sister. Um, and maybe that's why we hardly hear about Aegisthus in this play. I mean, he's mentioned a few times, but the focus is so on Clytemnestra that you can almost forget that he was murdered too. I mean, it's just Clytemnestra, Clytemnestra, Clytemnestra. Um, but I think it's because having their siblings present humanizes the deaths and the murders and and really shows how harmful vengeance is in in the world. Um, and so it, in all of the tellings of the stories of Orestes, we have this common theme of vengeance versus justice. Um, and and we see that here again, and it's it's quite blatantly on the surface in, in the argument between Tyndareus and Menelaus over how to respond to Orestes' actions. Um, Tyndareus insists that justice be served um, and that Orestes' vengeful act is not justice. And I think, I mean, I think we can agree that um, revenge murder is not justice. Um, but Tyndareus's idea of justice is really not that different than what Orestes, excuse me, than what Orestes did. Um, I mean, it's still, it's still a murder in revenge. It's a death in, in exchange for a death, an eye for an eye. Is that really justice? Um, and and it isn't until Apollo appears in his uh, Deus Ex Machina at the end that we get an alternative form of justice. It's not, I mean, it's obviously not a good restorative justice like we might want to see today, but it's not vengeance anymore. Um, and and so, you know, it that by perpetuating the revenge that started with Clytemnestra killing Agamemnon because he killed Aphechaniah, that that's not, that's obviously not justice. And it's not until Apollo appears that we get, get a real true proper break from that. We, we're stopping that a death for a death for a death. Um, so it is, it is interesting to put all three of our tragedians together because all of them talk about the story and all of them saw that it teaches us about vengeance and justice. Um, and, and so putting them together, we do get an interesting picture um, on what exactly justice means. Uh, AP credit, anybody? I That might be a good AP paper. Um, I have to say, I, I find it really hard not to think about Shakespeare when reading this play, um, especially the plotting scene. I mean, that screams Lady Macbeth, um, right down to uh, this comment about a man's spirit and a woman's body, um, which also is something purportedly said by Queen Elizabeth, basically, that she had had the spirit of a king, but the, the body of a woman. Um, in, in, 
and the same is said about Electra when she says, "Oh, you should you should kidnap kidnap Hermione and, and use her as a as a token." Like, ooh, like you'd have thought you were a man thinking up a plot like that, but you look like a woman, it, which is such a backhanded compliment. <laughs> um, but and anyway, I it made me think of Lady Macbeth primarily, and then and then Queen Elizabeth a little bit. Um, but either way even though like i said it's a little backhanded we we once again see euripides putting power in the hands of a woman um his electra is feistier than the other electras we've seen and she takes no prisoners in this play or rather she literally takes prisoners um but but what i think overall you'll see um, especially as we're nearly done with Euripides, is that his worldview, which we've already established is pretty darn dark, um, it just gets more and more bleak the older that he gets. And this play is pretty grim. No one is all that redeeming. Um, so, so what does that say about us as humans? I would love to hear your thoughts on anything I discussed today or anything else this play made you think of. Um, if you want some fun uh, tangents that my brain took, uh, pop over to the blog. I've shared a couple of things from YouTube there that, that are the direction my brain goes when I say certain things. Um, the blog is at triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL and maybe a link, uh, depending on your platform, are in the show notes. The URL for my Patreon page is in the show notes, too. I hope you'll consider joining me as a patron. Every little bit helps. On Wednesday, we will read book two of the Argonautica. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.